This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. So Dave, there's something we have in common with brown trout. You know what it is? You mean the big brown hogs? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. That's right. But no, there's something we have in common with those big boys. You know what it is? <laughs> we, we like to eat late at night. Absolutely. That's right. We like to eat late at night. After a, after a good day of uh, fly fishing, uh, we, we always make sure that we stop by a, a good steakhouse or ribbon chop house and... Uh, yeah, those browns like to feed late at night too, don't they? You no, know, that reminds me. I was talking, I had actually breakfast with a fly fisher in the area that I was connected to this week. And he's about our age, and the guy catches a lot of trout. Hmm. And well, just he, like us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're just like him. Uh, at least he sounded like he caught a lot of trout. Yeah. But he talked about this, this interregnum period. So from the moment you stop fly fishing at the end of the day, to the time you actually go to the restaurant and this kind of great anticipation. He was using the phrase supper club, like in Wisconsin, we often yeah. go to the supper clubs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am so there, right? I don't even need to do the fly fishing. <laughs> he transported oh. me. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the reason we're talking about all of this is because uh, several years ago, I learned something about a trout's diet that changed my approach to fly fishing. I took a fly tying class from a veteran fly fisher in Bozeman, Montana. His name is Bob Granger. He's become a good friend. Uh, He pointed out that 85% of a trout's diet comes from below the surface. I mean, think about that, 85%. And a lot of what trout feed on below the surface consists of emerging insects. And we imitate those uh, insects with nymph patterns And that's our topic today, nymph fishing basics. Now, if you want to back up a step and learn more about uh, getting started, we did a podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, on nymphing for beginners. It's kind of uh, nymph fishing 101. And we talk in that podcast about how to set up your rod and some casting basics. But today we want to highlight some uh, some of the basics that make nymph fishing successful. Uh, Dave, before we get started on those basics, I guess I'm still amazed at how such tiny flies, teeny tiny flies, catch such big fish. It really, it's it's one of the great wonders to me of the natural world. Oh, it is. I, you know, I think about catching these 19 to 20 inch rainbows on size 18 Copper Johns or Dave's Emergers in the spring on the Madison River, the upper and the lower. It's amazing. I mean, oh, it's just... It, it is. And it try to help us put that in perspective. I mean, how small is a size 18 fly? Well, it's like a stud earring. You know, you could cover. Yep. Do you wear a stud earring? I guess you, know, you don't I wear don't. a stud earring. Yeah, right. I don't. So it's I like, should. I mean, you could uh, cover a size 18 <laughs> fly with a postage stamp yep, or mm-hmm. an M&M. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that, that's speaking my language there. M&M's. Yeah, M&M's, yeah. exactly. So these things are so tiny and yet... 
you know, man, when you see, I mean, there are people who catch these 25, 28 inch rainbows. Oh, I know. On these tiny 20 and 22 oh, sized flies. It's you crazy. Know, you, you think of big streamers, you know, a two inch long streamer, big woolly bugger with a long tail and, and those can work great. But then you look at this tiny little fly and you say, it's amazing. there's no way they're even going to see it, let alone eat on it. But that's what they see. That, that's such a staple in, in their diet that it works. If you master the basics, so let's talk about some basics. Uh, let's start with fly selection. Dave, what are, some, what are some of the basic patterns that you like? There are legion, and so many of these can imitate different types of flies. And you know, right. the two big ones that we often use are the San Juan worm, of course. That's patently obvious uh, what that imitates. But also the prince nymph what we also call the beadhead prince nymph. Um, it's technically a stonefly imitation, but it also works as a mayfly nymph too. I mean, sometimes you're catching them, you don't know what's working, but the it beadhead it, prince nymph is working for some reason. And if I'm fishing somewhere that's new, unless I have just a solid recommendation that you got to try this, I, I always start with a, a beadhead prince or... Or it could be a hare's ear. I mean, that represents a stonefly emerger or, or an emerging caddis or a tiny crayfish. In other words, uh, it does triple duty. It, it's going to you know, imitate a lot of different things. One thing I have done in recent years is to default to the hare's ear or even the pheasant tail before I do a Yeah, it's another generic indicator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The pheasant tail is another generic or fly. I... Partly because the beadhead prince nymph is so common now. Yeah, yeah, you know, it 20, is. 30 mm -hmm. years ago it wasn't. But, you know, if you ever see, you know, a fly that's been caught on the side, you know, on a willow or something, it's usually a beadhead yeah, prince is. nymph, right? So uh, it's a, maybe it's too common. Maybe they see it too often. It's hard to know. It's, of course, it depends on the river and mm -hmm. how often it's getting slammed. Right. But, um, so often I won't go, I won't default to a prince nymph. Yeah. I'll default to a hare's ear or a pheasant Yeah, that tail. makes a lot of sense. So, I like a hare's ear. It really does look uh, buggy. Yeah, it's really a buggy fly. Now, these flies we've just mentioned are, are actually flies that we will often use in a, in a little bit bigger size, like a 12 to 14. But here are some that we do like in the really tiny sizes, like about a size 18. Uh, one of them would be a Copper John. Uh, Dave, I didn't know this, but a guy named John Barr... Uh, out of Boulder, Colorado, developed this in 1990. Wow. And wow. Uh, that's, a, that's a great pattern. It's not, as a fly tire, uh, it, it's not quite as quick to tie if, if you're a beginner, which I'm still kind of a beginner fly tire. Uh, I, I will often use just a brassy, which is just a, uh, you just tie some... Uh, imitate midges? Yeah, those imitate midges are even coronamids, caddis, mayflies. Again, it's kind of an all-purpose thing, but uh, for a brass, you just tie on some copper wire, whether it's copper-colored or, or it might be uh, even red. And then there's a little peacock hurl uh, right behind the eye of the fly. And, and then I, I always put a beadhead. We mentioned beadheads before. I, I always fish with a beadhead. So it's a beadhead hare's ear, beadhead pheasant tail, beadhead... You know, Prince Nymph. I, I just something about the bead heads. It's it weights it a little bit more, and I think the action that you get in the water is good. But anyway, back to these really tiny flies. Uh, I, I like a Copper John. 
Um, you know, there's a zebra midge. It's got a uh, black wire body with a strand of copper wire bands, and it's, uh, it, it is a little bit different look than, than maybe a brassy. It, it kind of imitates this little coronamid midge, which lives in silt and mud and in a lot of lakes and streams. What I like about it is that these hatch year-round, so th that's not a bad little uh, uh, go-to fly as well. And there's also egg patterns. Oh, yeah, that's, those are huge. You know, we used them this last fall when we were fishing uh, in Yellowstone National Park, and we would drop them um, from our, our top fly was a stonefly, stonefly nymph, and then we would drop, what, about 12, 14 inches? Yeah, about 12 inches. inches yeah, yeah, about 12 mm -hmm. inches we drop an egg pattern. Mm -hmm. And I tell you what, you know, if it's, if it's during the spawn, you know, sp when they're spawning, you know, be dynamite. Yeah, in the fall or in the spring, they're just super. And that brings up another point, then, or a related point. When we talk about fly selection, we almost always use a lead fly and a dropper. And there's a couple benefits to that. One is you, you get two different sizes of fly. So you have uh, your, your lead fly that you tie onto your tippet is going to be a little bit larger. Then we, we tie... Uh, like Dave said, we tie 12 inches of tippet material to the uh, usually the bend in the hook, and then at the end of that, then we put on a smaller fly. So uh, there's the variation in size, but there's also the variation in patterns. I, I guess if I, and I'm going to ask you this too, but if I had one setup that I use most, it's probably a, a beadhead prince, and then my dropper is a is a little copper john or a or a or a brassy and that might often I do that in in like red but but whatever the color that's that's often what I do what what's your go to yeah that's a good question i would say if it's in the spring or fall during spawning it'd be a beadhead prince nymph with an egg pattern yeah. but if mm -hmm. it's in other times of the year and it's just a generic mm -hmm. you're just nymphing i would say a hare's ear, beadhead hare's ear, and I drop the San Juan worm. Oh yeah, that's right. That you do, so much. You do that a lot. You do well with that. You I catch a lot do. of fish that way. I often drop it mm -hmm. off a streamer as well. Yep. But I often will drop it off a, a nymph too. So yep. the top flies the hare's ear. It might be a twelve or fourteen, and then I drop mm -hmm. the copper john, which might be a probably a sixteen copper john. Right. You can do fourteen too. You could. They're harder to get. They're, they tend to be mostly in 14s and 16s. Yeah. I've mm -hmm. never seen a really no. tiny copper john. Right. Or, excuse or me, a, a tiny a, a San Juan. Yeah. yeah, tiny San Juan. Yeah. You know, one thing I've done, too, on the, the lower Madison or in the bear trap in the spring when I know that there are rainbows running, I will, I will use an egg pattern for my lead fly. Huh. And then my dropper is that little size 18... Uh, uh, like a red brassy if it's something I tied. Or I also use a Dave's Emerger. That was a fly that a guy named uh, Dave Kerkoran in Bozeman developed back when he was at the river's edge. And, and he used some wood duck feathers uh, on that. Uh, but just, you know, it's, it, it gives it a little bit different look, but it, it's just another tiny little fly. So a lot of options there. But in terms of fly selection, I guess we'd say, hey, stick with the basic patterns. You know, our default answer is always ask the guys and the gals in the fly shop. They, they know what what's good patterns are and and uh, go with those. Use a lead fly and a dropper. Well, and I remember, you know, fly fishing with uh, some folks out in in Utah. And I've seen fly fishers. On the Provo? Yeah, on the yep. Provo. And seen 
folks drop, so there's, you're dropping two flies, so you actually have three flies. And so there's different ways to actually tie on a dropper, um, some complex, more complex ways, yeah. in my opinion. But I've stuck mostly with two flies, a, a lead fly and a trailer. And, you know, if you're just starting out, man, just stick with the, with the single fly, right? Yeah, and here's a, public, here's a public service announcement. If you want to use three flies, just expect to spend a lot of time untangling. Yeah, unless you're, unless you're some... Yeah, unless Fly there's no wind, God, right, right? Yeah, it's it's a <laughs> so, little trickier. So, or there's no wind or something. Yep. So that's one of the basics. Fly selection. Uh, another basic for nymphing would be depth. Uh, Dave, what are some of the things you have to think about when you're you're talking about depth? I mean, we're trying to get down to where the fish are. That's the that's the issue. So when you're thinking about depth, when you're moving up or down the river, every run, generally is more or less different than each other. So you need to adjust your fly based on the depth because you want that fly to be rolling along the bottom or as closely to the bottom as possible. So generally in terms of depth, when you are first hitting the river, you have to kind of check it out. If you're getting snagged every other cast, then you're probably too deep. If you're never getting snagged uh, with that bottom fly, then you're probably not deep enough. So you do have to make continual adjustments um, on the depth of that fly. And, and let me ask you, how do you do that? Because, okay, so if I go out to the river, I'm, I'm going to put on a split shot or two. But if I'm moving from run to run, I mean, I don't have, I don't have time to take split shot off, put them back on. Do I? Is that, is that what you got to do? So what you do is you just move your strike indicator up or down. Yeah, good point. So that gives you more... Um, so, for example, if you're not deep enough, you move your strike indicator up because that gives you more line. If you're not getting down deep enough, maybe you add some split shot. So if you're fishing smaller runs, it's really important that that gets down right away. Yeah. And sometimes it's tough to get down right away. It is. So when, if I'm fishing the driftless, sometimes I'll actually put more weight on so that top fly gets down right away because there's not a lot of run. That's a good and point. And so it's, it's always about... Um, you're you know really monitoring it and making yeah. adjustments so here's what you can't do it's not like dry fly fishing where you got your dry fly on and you just move from run to run or from pool to pool and it, your length stays the same and you're not changing your rig mm -hmm. i just with nymph fishing it's it's just continual adjustments throughout the day to, right. to, to make sure that nymph is getting down uh, you know as close to the bottom as possible it is and there's another way too that you can make an adjustment without having to you know do a lot of, of uh, you know work with your gear in other words you don't even have to uh, move your strike indicator position or add or take off more split shot and that is if, if you want to go deeper cast a little further up river to give your fly time to sink or the opposite is true if you don't want to go down as deep well uh, don't cast up quite so far and and that way as, as it as your fly goes through that run, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of on the way down, but uh, it's not going to get as, it's not going to get too deep until you get through the run. So yeah, that, we that, saw that in the Garden River last fall. You're right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, You're so right. That's right. We were fishing that one little run, and uh, we were picking up some nice browns, but 
figured out it was important to cast up a little further because it was a deeper run, wasn't it? Yeah, than it really we were, was. Than some of the others we were fishing. And so as soon as we started casting up a little further, it just seems like we hit that sweet spot. Yeah. The, the fly, when it went through the, the hot zone, as, as we called it, uh, it was it was at the depth we needed it to be. Just because we were casting, what, maybe five? No, I think it was about 10 feet further upriver, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. So depth is one of those things. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an article called, you know, the seven nagging questions of nymph fishing. And one of the nagging questions always is, am I deep enough? If you're too deep, it's not a nagging question. It's a snagging question. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to get good. snagged, right? But the nagging question is, are you deep enough? And I think you just have to continually pay attention. You can't fall asleep. Did you copyright it. that? It's not a nagging question. It's a snagging question. <laughs> that was pretty good. It was on that the fly. Was, that was pretty good. It was on the fly. Oh, boy. The okay, now. Multi-layered <laughs> puns here. Yeah, we better move on. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about drift. Um, you know, there's not a lot here that's horribly complex, but there are a couple things that you really want to pay attention to. Uh, I think one of them that I've had to learn is to let your drift go as long as possible. I remember the first time I started nymphing, and I mean, you, you typically cast, uh, what, maybe at a 45 degree angle upriver, and and I'd let my uh, fly drift down, and, and once it got past me, I'd start hauling it in. And I had a friend, Kevin, who was a really veteran fly fisher. He said, man, you're pulling that in way too soon. He says, let that drift down another 20 or 30 feet. And so he showed me, you know, here, feed, you know, feed some line, and you can kind of wiggle your rod tip to, to let some of that line out, kind of almost in, a, in an S pattern or a wavy pattern. And... And I was surprised. I mean, yeah. I, the, sometimes I was picking up fish right at the end of, of that drift. So I think that's one thing on your drift uh, where if you're fishing streamers, you, you tend to retrieve it a little sooner. You want to let it swing. Then you want to strip it towards you. Uh, or with a, a dry fly, you might say, well, okay, the window is right in front of me. But when you're nymph fishing, if it's a long run, I, I remember on the Gallatin River, uh, in Montana, uh, just south of, uh, of Four Corners, uh, north of uh, Big Sky. There's some long runs, and uh, it, it's ideal. Or even on the Bear Trap in the Madison, some really nice long nymphing runs. And uh, uh, let those things drift as, as long as you possibly can. The other thing about the drift, of course, is the mend. Oh, that's so and, critical. you know, this is just... You can't nymph fish without being good at mending. And I think for me, mending is the, is the art and skill of a lifetime. Yeah. And so just recently when we were fishing with a guide and fishing this run, he, you know, I was mending the line and flipping you know, the line upstream. So I'd cast it and then flip it upstream, which often you will do. Right. But in this particular run, given how short the run was, once you cast it, you actually needed to move your rod kind of at a 45 degree angle and actually strip in line and just work on getting that line and keeping the line actually in front of the drift. Yep. That's and so. so it was just different. And it had to do with the speed of the river, yeah. the size of the run, the angle that we were fishing at. So the point is the dead drift. 
And that's the goal. And I think yeah, it's, you're trying to reduce the drag. You, you don't want your drag. fly uh, kind of zooming along unnaturally in in the uh, in the water faster than the current. Right. So yeah, that's what mending is trying to prevent. And, and you can see that if you're if you're fishing on the surface, you know, dry flies, you can see uh, the the drag. It's kind of like your fly is is skiing and and it leaves a wake. Well. It's a little different under the surface. It's not like it's leaving a wake, but it's, it just looks unnatural to the fish. It's not drifting. It's like it's being towed. Yeah, towed, <laughs> right. You can exactly. see the difference. Towed is bad. That's right. Absolutely. Hey, one more basics that we ought to talk about. It almost seems so basic that, uh, that we don't need to mention it, but uh, it, it's important, and that's your strike. Uh, when, you, uh, when you have a fish that, uh, uh, that strikes and you go to, to set the hook, a couple things. One is uh, you're typically using a strike indicator, a glorified bobber, but as fly fishers, uh, we like to call those yeah, strike indicators. That's right, so sophisticated. But whatever kind of strike indicator you use, uh, it's it's going to be up above your fly, maybe five feet, maybe seven feet, uh, just again, depending on the depth of the, the water, but you're watching, that's what you're watching. You are watching that strike indicator. And when it disappears, or sometimes even if it just bobs imperceptibly, uh, you, you need to set the hook because you might have a, a rock, but uh, could have a fish on. So I think when it bobs and there is a fish, it's almost too late the moment you see yeah, it. It's, yeah. And so there are probably so many subtle strikes that I oh, just yeah. miss. Uh, that was happening to me this fall in the Gardner River. I think you pointed it out. I mean, I'm drifting. My, my strike indicator is going down. You'd say, I think you just got a strike. No, I think you just got a strike. And you said, you know, those little almost imperceptible. I thought, yeah, right. But I'll, I'll humor you and, and set the hook. Boom, next time I did, there's a fish on. Yeah. So you, you're it, right. They're subtle. Sometimes those takes are so, so yeah. subtle. The other thing, of course, is you know setting the hook by pulling to the side, and we've mentioned this over and over in podcasts, but it's something that we always have to be reminded of. If you're moving from dry fly fishing to nymph fishing, you don't set the hook the same way. And in nymph fishing, you you pull downstream to the side. If you pull up, you're going to pull it out of its mouth. Yeah, the fish is facing upriver, so yeah, you're right, downriver. I'm just trying to visualize that. In other words, it's the direction that your strike indicator is floating. That's the direction that you want to uh, to pull. Yeah, and yeah. it's a little bit counterintuitive. I think you have to kind of practice doing it because I you think do. your reflex is to pull up. Oh, I know. I, I had that again this fall. I, I kept pulling up, and the guy we were fishing with kept on me and said, you're not fishing dry flies. Stop pulling up. Pull to the side. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And five seconds later, I'd do the same thing. Yeah. It really took a lot of uh, concentration to finally do it the correct way. Well, that's what we've got for today. Hopefully, those basics will uh, help you in your nymph fishing. Right now, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. We always appreciate your comments on our Two Guys website and also on Facebook. Chuck posted this comment on my article, Trouble with the Cast, and I love what he said. He wrote, about timing that back cast, Lefty Cray, and by the way, he was a legendary fly yeah, fisher. Rock star. Lefty Cray used to ask you where you were from if you were in a casting class with him. 
didn't matter where you were from. He just wanted uh, for you to use this mantra during the backcast. I was from Moreno at the time, so the mantra was said during the backcast before you turned into the forward cast. He said, this is what you would say. You, you've done your backcast, and then you'd say this before you did your forward cast. That's, I'm, I'm just explaining that. Chuck didn't go into all that uh, detail, but just so you get the picture. So here was the mantra. Reno is a good place to be from, and then you do your forward cast. I, I guess it would be like counting to five or something. But yeah, so backcast. Reno is a good place to be from, forward cast. And Chuck says, that works great unless you were from someplace like <laughs> Podunkistan. You know, right now I live in Libertyville. That might be, uh, yeah, like Libertyville is a good place to be from. It's like, oh, no, I got my fly. You know, it's, I, I, went, I waited too long. <laughs> so I guess yeah. you have to have a good one or two syllables. It's sitting city. in that willow yeah. back behind me. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah true. <laughs> but he said this worked wonders for allowing that back cast to completely unfurl. And, and that's what we're after, isn't it? Right. That's, that, that's a great tip. Uh, Chuck also said Lefty Cray was big on getting that back cast very high, too. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a good point. Well, that will do it for today. Please tell us any insights that you've learned about fishing nymphs. Please go to twoguysintheriver.com and comment on this podcast link. What suggestions would you recommend for uh, those who are new to nymph fishing? What are some basics that uh, you need to remember? Yeah, what would you add? You can find Two Guys in a River on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love for you to visit our podcast on iTunes and rate it. Also, you can download a podcast app on your phone and receive our weekly podcasts. Go to the website. You can get every episode we've ever published and you can see every article that we've ever published. I think we're at 70 or 80. I've lost count, but there's a lot of great content, uh, especially if you're an aspiring or beginner fly fisher. Wow, there really is. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>